As we continue in chapter one today, I'm thankful for um, just the time that we've had so far. And here we are only uh, in verse 46, but it's been so fruitful. Um, the account we're going to study this morning is a very special portion of Holy Scripture. And I don't just mean in the Gospel of Luke, I mean in all of Scripture. Uh, it is here that we lend an ear to Mary, the mother of Jesus, song of high praise to God. It is praise that is from a humble and grateful heart. It is praise for the grace and power and mercy uh, to elevate the grace and power and mercy of our good God. Um, for many brothers and sisters throughout history, this song of Mary has become a most precious part of the church's liturgy. And I pray it's a real blessing to you today as we dig in. One of the things that my study found as I spent time with the Lord in this passage this week was how acquainted with God's work and promises young Mary was. We need to not forget that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a young teenager. In that culture, young teenage girls were much more uh, mature and um, trained and ready for family and marriage and, and children than, than our present day uh, practice is. Um, and yet, even in her short amount of years, she knows the Word of God. Um, she was familiar with these stories, with the promises, with the teachings of Scripture. Likely very familiar with another place we see a similar song, and that's Hannah's song uh, that we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 2, if you want to make note of that and maybe spend some time this week looking at Hannah's song in comparison to Mary's. There's some wonderful similarities. Uh, Mary likely knew Hannah's song of praise and now is primed in the wake of God's mighty work in her life to sing her own song. And as you'll see this morning, the depth of Mary's insight into the promises of God and the ways of God uh, reveal a very faithful work of her parents, of her community, those who invested into her and taught her God's good truths from a young age. Scripture says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And her mouth is speaking and ringing high praise for the holy God. And this causes me to say and ask the Lord, may one day we get to hear the humble and grateful praise come out of the mouths of our children, children of Disciples Church, the children uh, that we are parenting of this generation, um, and that that would be the result of our faithful commitment to catechizing them in God's truths, to exposing them to solid teaching of his word, and making serious uh, the things of God for their lives and forming them for what is ahead. Uh, may it be God's good grace and plan to give them saving faith forever changed to be part of his holy family, to sing praise to their good God as well. As you hear Mary's song this morning, church, join me in seeing how deep God's word is in her head and her heart as she testifies of God's mighty work and promises. It is truly a solid rock under her feet, and I pray it is growingly so for us as well as we venture through these days that God gives us under the sun. Draw near with me, church, and let's listen to Mary's song together. Luke 1, 46-47 begins with this. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary rightly sees that God is not only a God who rules, but a God who saves. Think about that. She's overwhelmed with praise because the very work he is doing in her womb is the work of true and lasting salvation for her and all of God's elect for generations. Mary's words here show a familiarity with the Old Testament references to the God of salvation. We see it in places like Psalm 25, 5. Lead me to your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. 
Isaiah 12, 2, Behold, God is my salvation, and I will trust, and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Micah 7, 7, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. God is not only a God who is, not only a God who creates, not only is he a God who rules, he's not only a God who enacts his perfect justice, he is a God who saves. Not only does Mary's spirit rejoice in her God who saves, but her soul magnifies the Lord who reigns. 1 Chronicles 16.31 Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, and let them say among the nations, The Lord, Yahweh, reigns. There are so many things our flesh can magnify, can rejoice in, can sing about. Much of this morning as we work through this text, I want you to consider, what is the song of your heart? What do people know you to be passionate about and celebrating? Right? There are so many things we can magnify and rejoice in and sing about. But what is more worthy of our praise, of our passionate song, than God? than who he is, than what he has accomplished. No matter what we're going through, God is worthy of our highest praise. First Chronicles 29.11 is one of my favorite places in Scripture, and I think you'll see why. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours yours is the kingdom O Lord and you are exalted as head above all Mary sees who God is but he also, she also sees what he's doing in her life so she continues her praise with gratitude for what he has specifically done in her life for he has shown her grace and favor that she did not deserve. She is a lowly, nobody teenage girl who is in need of a savior just like everyone else. And so she continues her song in verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary's humbled that the high and majestic God of all creation would show her favor humble servant of humble estate in this she understands that her standing in life among the culture and powers that surround her she understands that she belongs to the little and low people of menial circumstances as opposed to big rich powerful people of lofty circumstances as she'll reference a contrast later in verse 52 Mary's mention of her humble estate church is not just a reference to her physical lot in life among society, but her spiritual standing as a sinner in need of a savior. Right? When we're prideful and, and accomplished, then, then I'll make my own way. When I understand humbly that I'm a sinner, then I need a savior. Mary has a right, high view of God and a proper low view of herself in the shadow of the holy God as a sinner who's in need of a savior so as we work through the song this morning we're going to return to this important posture of humility it's a theme throughout and so the ministry of God to those of low estate is also something to recognize as she's pointing out God's unique work to put his favor on her who is she is really a, a great foreshadowing of the ministry of the baby within her womb. For Jesus 
God the Son in the flesh will emerge and his ministry will also be to the lowly. Right? Think about all the ways that we see throughout the Gospels. Uh, his, his ministry um, to healing the sick, exercising demons from the possessed, reaching out to and restoring the discredited, the marginalized outcasts of society, spending time with sinners, preaching good news to the poor, and on and on. Mary continues, my spirit, to recap what she said, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. In this, she is thankful. She's singing, she's praising God because she's grateful by God's grace. She sees the gift that it is, that he is to be praised for it especially for his saving grace. Mary sees God as her Savior, and she's praising him for grace, for this grace in her life. And I would say, Christian, I would ask you, despite your current circumstances of life, you who truly belong to Jesus by faith, are you so very grateful for God's grace in your life? And I don't mean an answer that says, Pastor, of course I'm thankful for that. No, I mean an answer that reveals that you are constantly and truly and deeply thankful for God's grace at work in your life. It is not a gratitude that is shared and then done. It constantly spills out of you. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, No matter what happens, always be thankful for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Right? So even in the midst of a life that he might ordain full of great hardship, lasting hardship, how do we fulfill that? Because I am grateful for the grace of God that has set me free. And I'm not losing sight of that. And it causes me to sing. It causes me to remain a grateful person. David says in Psalm 55, 95 too, let us come before him with thanksgiving. G.C. Ryle once wrote, paraphrase, let us rise with our, from our beds every morning with a deep conviction that we are forgiven trespassers, forgiven transgressors, and every day that we have in Christ, we have more mercies than we deserve. We have so much to be thankful for, especially for God's saving grace in our lives. We should thank Him for this. Thank God that He saves not because of our performance or lack thereof, not because of our position in life, no, because of his own free will to save. Mary is astounded at his grace. She sees her lowly lot, what she has to offer, and she says, amazing. Look at what God has done. She continues, verse 48 and 49, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For, for who he is, I'm sorry, for, who, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Oh, church, it's important that we read this uh, portion of the text correctly. See that Mary is not excited that she will be the focus of people's attention for generations. I think we could read this and say, wow, yeah, she's stoked that she's now famous. Right? That's, that's not what she's doing here. Mary is celebrating that people for generations will see the grace-filled favor of God that he ordained to put on her, a nobody teenage girl, She's saying, behold, right? That word means look intently at the fact that this grace of God has moved into this humble girl's life. 
this will not just be celebrated right now among my peers. It will be celebrated for all generations. How do we know that she's not talking about being stoked that she's going to be famous now and it being about her? Because of how she continues, right? For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She doesn't say, for it is me who is great, holy and hallowed be my name. As sadly, man has turned Mary into. No, she is saying, behold, Generations will see the favor of God, the grace of God, the work of God in my little life. She's saying, look at God. Praise God. Worship God. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Church, this is how our song, our testimony should be as well. That our very lives, our very presence around other people, our testimony to those around us, our joy is constantly pointing to what God has done and is doing. We need to sing and testify. Look at what God has done in his amazing grace to save a wretch like me. He is mighty. He has done great things. Holy is his name. And so I just ask you this morning, to consider the song of your heart, the testimony of your life. What, what is on your lips? What is, what is the things you're talking about and singing about and celebrating? What are you saying among those who you do life with? What are you saying to the watching world, especially when your life gets turned upside down? What song are you singing then? Right? Where is your focus and your energy? Is it solely on how you're affected by these things? Or is your heart and your, therefore your words fixed on who God is and what He's doing in and through you? Our faith needs to bring us to that place. Keep us there. Mary turns her praise towards God's work in other people's lives. This is something we should also be singing about. It's, for me, one of my favorite things to sing about. right? And when I say sing about, I don't mean walking up to people and then finding a good key and then belting it out. I, I mean excited just to share testimony. Excited to, to give praise to God. Let me, let me tell you. And one of the things that I love to do and I find myself doing often is telling other people your stories. Telling other people what God's been doing in your life. Because it's awesome. Because it's amazing to see the layers and the work, the things that you're overcoming, the ways that you're growing, that what God has done. And, and I just pray that that would be something that would be a part of our story, right? What, what is God doing, not just in me, but in, but in our church and in the other Christians' lives that I, that I know I'm seeing God at work in these most amazing ways. And so she turns and says, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. She sees not only that God's at work in her life, but He's doing a work that is generational. And it is full of His mercy. God's mercy is amazing. Paul spoke famously about God's mercy for all whom He ordained to save in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved we in our sin deserved God's wrath not only for a while but forever but because he is rich in mercy, he causes many of us to trust in him, to turn from our sin and our fleshly ways, to, to trust him and to honor him and live for him, to fear him. So hear it again. His mercy, she says, is for those who fear him 
from generation to generation. In other words, God's mercy will be poured out on those who fear him. So then we need to slow and ask, who then will fear the Lord? And if we have a right understanding and I had more time, we could, we could comb through Scripture to see that those who are still dead in sin do nothing under the glory of the Lord, right? Um, if, if there's any fear for God, it might be for some kind of judgment, but there's no righteous fear, right? There's a denial of God. There's a, a discrediting of God. There's a lack of priority for God in the life of the unbeliever, so it is those whom God makes alive together with Christ, as Paul we just read, those whom he saves, will have a righteous fear of God. Only in Christ will we do that. Right? So what does it mean then to fear the Lord? What does that look like? Does it mean to be scared? Does it mean to hide, to avoid? And the answer is no. Right? The fear, God is to be feared not like a tyrant, God is to be feared not like the head of a drug cartel or like an abusive relative. No, he is to be feared with awe and reverence and respect. That's the fear of the Lord. Scripture says that the righteous will fear the Lord. Uh, Psalm, uh, Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Psalm 33.8, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Psalm 34.9, oh fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The fear that all of these point to is not one of terror, but one of respect, one of reverence, one of honor. Those who turn from honoring the flesh and creation to rightly honoring God and the Creator are the ones who are walking righteously in the Lord. Understand, mankind will not do this while we're enslaved to our sin, right? God must grant us faith first. It's only there in His mercy that He gives to the unfaithful that He gives us faith. And so in this, Mary is tying together both God's mercy and a right fear of the Lord. And in tying those together, she's doing a sound thing. Why? Because you can't have one without the other. Without God's mercy to give you saving faith, you won't have a righteous fear of the Lord. right? And those who don't fear the Lord clearly don't have His mercy. Christian, if God has put his mercy on you, then you will have the Spirit of God to empower a righteous fear of the Lord. Praise God for his mercy, which is at work in his elect, generation to generation and around the world. Do you know, do you realize this is happening today, not only in our generation, but around the world Paul spoke to this reality well in Colossians 1, 5, and 6. Of this you've heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Praise be to God. Disciples, church, we need to not lose sight of this game-changing truth. It needs to be a part of what we wake up unto. I'm a part of this. The mercy of God on those who have a righteous fear of the Lord, I'm a part of that. And that's happening generationally. And so when we wake up, there's a rejoicing in that. There's an excitement for this day because I get to be part of that. That's what Mary's experiencing here. She continues, He has shown strength with His arm. We talked a lot about God's strength last sermon together, about his omnipotence, right, in our last sermon together. If you missed that, I encourage you to go back and catch, catch that on our website, on our podcast. And we, we got to that. We spent much time there because the angel Gabriel said, nothing will be impossible with God. Luke 1.37. Nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. God's strength is unmatched. 
So when Mary speaks of God's arm, she's using language that Scripture uses to try to communicate something really big about God. And God doesn't have an arm, spirit, so there's what we call anthropomorphic language that's being used. Our Word of Truth Catechism gives us this wonderful definition. Anthropomorphic, ascribing a human body, appearance, um, functions, or parts to something that is not human. This is a common accommodation that God uses in His Word to communicate how He works. So we see examples of this even related to his strength. Psalm 89, 13, you have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. Psalm 118, 15, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Church, God is able to do all his holy will. God is all powerful. Church, God's power and strength should captivate us as it does Mary. To sing of his work and his strength, for nothing is impossible with God. That is a truth that needs to stay right here in front of me all the time. She continues, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, brought down the mighty from their thrones, and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Here she launches into a a big comparison between the proud and the humble. And this is a lot more central to life, our lives, than we give it credit. Our struggle with pride has been from the beginning of our race. Adam's fall unto sin was to believe the deceiver's temptation to make his life about himself, to be like God. And he bought it. And ever since then, we have been truly struggling with our pride. God detests the sin of pride, mainly because of who it aims to please. See, pride looks to attract the attention of others. Look at me. Look what I've accomplished. Making it about us. But humility looks to attract the attention of God. I don't need your attention. I have the attention of God. So I can put off all this working, accomplishing, and, and boasting, and flexing. I don't need to earn something. What's needed to have been earned, Christ did for me in my place. God's word is clear time and time again how much God detests pride and loves humility. So Old Testament examples, Isaiah 13, 11, I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant. And lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We have to understand that pride is an enemy of God. It's evil. Why? Because it causes man to begin that we're to it causes man to be believe that we're worthy of worship, worthy of praise. Right? But here's the problem. Only God is worthy of our praise. It's not about us. It's about Him. The snag is, is not only was Satan successful in that first temptation, he became a master marketer. Satan's in the marketing business. Um, and he repackaged pride as self-esteem. And he convinced a lot of us, convinces a lot of us naively to buy it, that we need self-esteem. Right, that that's a good thing. It's worth pursuing and growing, and we teach it to our kids. But, but we don't need self-esteem. It's pride, right? We need esteem in God, right? We need esteem in Christ, that my identity, my value is in Christ. My joy is in Christ. So I would live for God's glory and not my own Whatever amount of esteem I'm working on, I've got to keep that up. I've got, I've got to keep that of good record, of good rapport. And, and it's a trap. And, and Scripture is clear, Proverbs 6, 16 and 17, a proud looks an abomination to the Lord. Pro Proverbs 15, 25, God promises to destroy the house of the proud. Proverbs 21, 4, a haughty look, a proud heart are, are sin. Proverbs 
right? And so, so even in this, we, we need to be careful about school pride or, or pride in these different things. Why? Because, because they're a slippery slope of saying, look at the accomplishments of, instead of look at what God is doing in and through this. We need to wire our thinking and our practices to recognize the hand of the Lord that we're boasting in Him. Celebrating good things that are happening, surely, but we don't need pride. Our prayer needs to be, God, I need help. I need a Savior. I need to die to myself. I think about myself too much. I need to get out of myself. I'm addicted to myself. If I'm honest in my sin, I love myself. I love what I've accomplished. I love what's mine. I don't want to lose it. I don't need self-esteem. I need identity in Christ, security in Christ. I don't need to self-actualize. I need to worship the Lord and live for His glory. Right? James 4, 6, He gives more grace, therefore God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Listen to Mary's words again. 51 through 53. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Oh, we need the power of God to overcome pride, to be on the team of the humble and not the team of the proud. And if, and if there ever was a most extreme example of this, it is God the Son, eternal, in His work in the flesh. Look at Philippians 2, 5-11. Paul commends the church. So this is for us. Your attitude should be the same of that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. The name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul points to Christ's most amazing model of humility. Any part of, of fighting pride to, to live out humility, we need to go no further than Jesus himself who gives us the most extreme and wonderful examples and empowerment to do this. There was no one higher who ever went as low in great humility than Christ. In the life of Christ, we can see a living demonstration of what it means to be humble. That we too may live humbly and put away pride. Mary is speaking of the blessing that God has for the humble and the demise of the proud. And in that, we need to take seriously, which team do I play for? Even we who have Christ, am I, do I claim Christ and live for Christ and yet still I... I struggle with pride. I, I would venture to guess that much of the very deepest struggles you are in the middle of, if you trace it back far enough, get to pride. Let us slow down. Consider which team we're playing for. The proud or the humble. The proud says, don't tell me anything. I... I already know. The humble says, I value your advice. The humble says, I value your rebuke. Pride says, I, I need, I want, I deserve. The humble says, he needs, they want, they deserve. Pride says, God, I'm so much better than that guy or her. Like The humble says, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Pride criticizes others to tear them down. The humble praises others to try to build them up. 
pride exalts himself to resist God. The humble humbles himself before God to lift God up, exalt him. Pride says, I can do it. Humble says, I can only do it through Christ. Pride says, I want to be served. The humble say, I, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Pride says, hey, look what I did. Take notice. Give me some praise. The humble say, look at what God has done and is doing. Give him praise. Pride is what stood in the streets and yelled, crucify him. Humility is what hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Pride seeks glory but does not find it. Humility receives glory and honor from God Almighty. Oh, how I don't want to be on Team Pride. But the question is, how? How, how do I do this? Right? How, how do I consider others as more important than myself? How do, how do I, how am I content? And, and I've really been dealing a lot with that in my own study and just really seeing that the life of the church, of us, when healthy, when honoring the Lord, is so less about us. It's so less about needing to criticize everything and, and, and this isn't the way I want or I want that or I want this and it's all about me. But when I'm content in Christ, I want to serve. I, I don't need to complain. I, I'm here for you. I have everything I need in Jesus. Let me be a blessing to you. What does that? How do I live there? How do I really do that? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus is our only hope for real humility, for lasting humility. And, and we get to that with a clear view of the gospel, with seeing the good news. Jesus, God the Son, eternal, worthy of all adoration and obedience and fame, humbles himself unto flesh, under ridicule, unto a criminal's cross, so that we who are the proud, who wanted God's spotlight for ourselves, could be saved. So that in Christ we could be made new and brought to real humility. So, the gospel's got to go to work. It's the only way we escape God's wrath due our pride and sin. And the only way we're ushered into the kingdom of His beloved Son into a life of humility. You have to claim Jesus. You have to die to self and live to him. So, so that's, that's part of what Mary's elevating here, is that those who are proud, those who don't need a Savior, those who are going to make their own way, those who don't need the Word to direct them, they don't want to be committed and accountable to the local church, they're going to do it their way. She's saying, God's going to break that down. There is a required humility that's got to happen in faith when we die to self to live to Christ. And then the Lord will grow it. He'll mature it. He'll water it. Sanctify it. And I love this. In my study, I noticed something in particular that stood out in verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. That word brought down in our English translation there, we see that Greek word in another place later in this very gospel, way later. Look with me at Luke 23, 52 through 53. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, there's that word, and wrapped it in linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever laid before. Joseph of Arimathea is given permission to take Jesus' body down off the cross and bury it in a tomb. God brings down the prideful from their thrones. Jesus, who is the King of Kings, willingly goes low, is brought down off of a throne of degradation, the cross, so that we 
could be saved. So that we who are unaccomplished, so that we who admit we need a Savior, can join Him in glory. See in this that we have nothing to boast in. And I don't need anything. I don't need to accomplish anything. Jesus has done it for me. So I boast in Christ crucified, raised to glory on our behalf. That I see how desperate I am for Jesus alone. Mary says the proud will be scattered. They will be brought down. They will be sent away empty. But the humble will be exalted. They will be filled. This is the work of the Lord throughout Scripture. And I pray that we would see it. Uh, Paul says it well in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Right? He's acknowledging the reality of the low estate of many whom have been saved. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you who are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Mary sees what God's doing, and she's singing and boasting in the Lord. It's not about what we can accomplish and get to. If anything, it's about us dying to ourselves to live to Christ. Mary's praise for God is from a humble and a grateful heart. She turns in verse 54 and says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. So now she's looking back. Right? She's acknowledged who God is and what he's doing. She's acknowledged what he's done in her life, acknowledged what he's doing in others' lives. And now she's looking back at the, at the work of God in, in history. Mary is praising God for all that he has done in Israel. How has God helped Israel? Well, just think of some of the big moments of their journey. Number one, he chose Israel of all the peoples in the world. He provided for them exit, exodus from slavery. He provided for them tangible needs in the desert wilderness. He brings them to the promised land, and on and on. God helps those whom he loves, church. The question is, are we acknowledging his help? Are we thanking him for his provisions? Are we grateful for them like we should be? And the answer is, if we're honest, often it's no. Often I act like a really spoiled kid. And really, that's what Israel did too, right? Think about their story. They complained after they were delivered from years of slavery. So much so they said, just take us back. We actually like the setup better back there. They dishonored God by worshiping false gods in the desert. And when they got to the edge of the promised land where he said he would take them, they said, I don't think we can overcome these giants. And doubted his ability to give, them to, to give the promised land to him. How quick in the flesh are we like this? To complain. Even amidst great provision and grace, we're still finding something to complain about. Now this isn't to say that the sorrow we're going through, the struggle that many of us are going through, are not real among this life of thorns and thistles. They are. They're real. They're hard. But even in the midst of that, where is your heart and your focus? Is it finding what you don't have to complain about? Or is it full of grateful, thankful praise to God for what He has done in His doing? This is why Mary's prayer for us this morning is helpful. Her life just got completely flipped upside down, right? And yet she is full of praise. She is full of remembering God's work and His promises and wants to praise Him for it. And we need to do this too. We can't lose sight of all the ways that He's at work in blessing us and providing for us. Do you realize just your ability to be here this morning from when you woke up, even your ability to wake up, and to function, and to be here, and all the things that worked right, in gravity, 
in the sun, in the traffic, in the automobile, in your body to move. All of this stuff is the gracious provision of the Almighty God. And that's just a couple hours of a Sunday morning. What about everything else that he has done and is doing? Not to mention the spiritual victory and eternal win he's given us to claim us and make us his, secure us. And yet, what we can do is be like sitting at a huge feast of all this goodness. And yet the only thing coming out of my mouth is to complain about the one thing on the table that I really don't like. See Mary's example. She's filled with praise despite the hardships in her life. She does this because she sees who God is, what he's done, what he's doing. I mean, she's an oppressed society. A teenager was just told she's pregnant, not yet married. Everything in her social life's upside down. Don't forget, God hasn't spoken prior to these few months to his people in 400 years. She's got a lot of recent events to be critical about. And yet she's looking bigger than that. As should we, to, with the word, with, with the active work of God. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Then she says in verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God made a promise, a covenant with Abraham. And in that there were, there were um, earthly physical stipulations and rewards for the old covenant. And there was a pointing to the spiritual promises for mankind that would come through Abraham. And in this, God is showing our need for a savior. God choosing the small and seemingly insignificant Israel was symbolic of how he would choose, who he would choose for eternal salvation. The physical seed of Abraham pointed to the spiritual seed, the eternal chosen one. Our friend Sam Ranahan wrote about this and said it well. The old covenant is promised to Abraham and throughout is pregnant with the new covenant. It promises the new covenant because it promises the mediator of the new covenant to be born from their midst. The Abrahamic covenant, the promise that his seed will multiply and be blessed forever, is pointing, right? The great privilege of Israel established in the old covenant is that the one who will affect and bring about the final fulfillment will be one of their own. The Abrahamic covenant was designed to push history towards this, marking out the people in place of the Messiah's birth. And it was designed to foreshadow it, positively and negatively, in God's promises and Israel's failures. As Abraham trusted in the son of the covenant, he became a child of the son's covenant, the new covenant. As Abraham looked past the earthly blessings to the heavenly ones and believed in them, all Israel was called to do the same. She says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. She's speaking of God delivering on the long-standing promises of mercy to his chosen people, both in the temporary ways the old covenant did and in the eternal ways that the new covenant will. The very Redeemer within her womb. If a lot of that feels like a lot, we're going to spend multiple weeks teaching through the covenants of God at midweek and uh, tur turn of the year. It's coming to catch you up. Who is Abraham's promised offspring forever? Paul says it so clearly in Galatians 3.29. Listen how clear this is. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you belong to Christ, if you have died yourself and given your life to Christ, then you are a recipient of God's mercy and an heir of Abraham according to his covenantal promise. Praise be to God. God's at work. And she's singing about it. And so should we. Finally, Luke concludes in this portion of the passage in verse 56. Mary remained with her 
about three months and returned to her home. Here's young Mary, life turned upside down, all this going on, all the reasons of the world is to be focused on herself. And once again, she takes her words and puts them to action. She stays for three months to care for her cousin Elizabeth in her old age in the latter year months of this hard pregnancy. To love them, to fellowship with them, to serve them. In Mary's song, we see her steadfast cling to the promises of God and to the testimony of God that he's been at work and is continuing to be. We need this too, church. I pray that Mary's example to lay firm hold on the promises and work of God is a huge reminder for us to do this as well. God's word and promises are the manna that we eat and the water that we drink to sustain us through the wilderness of this broken world. We cannot see all the things that Christ has prepared, nor the wonder of his face yet, but we walk by faith. We hold on to the steadfast word, and we trust him. It is on the testimony and promises of God that he has given us in the word that we too need to walk and talk our way through these days to sing our song. Just like Mary has done so well in her song, may our song be filled with good theology of God's work and be empowering good faith and humility as we live out these days he gives us under the sun for his glory and many other people's good. Excited to see what's to come. Pray with me, church, and we'll sing. Father, I thank you for this day, for this time, for the ways that you are at work in us, for the just the ways in which you're intervening in our lives to, to bring um, a community of faith together, to, to bring us to your written word, to give us access to it, that we could study these things and know them and, and celebrate and grow, mature. I pray in the ways that we're convicted and, and seeing where our pride, we've given it a bed, we've, we, we've, we've tended to it, that, that we would cling to Christ and the Spirit would empower a real um, dying to self, a real ridding ourselves of, of pride and a real cling and a, and a peace and a contentment and humility. And that our lives are so much more about those around us than, than ourselves, that what, what we have in Christ is what we need. We want to boast in Him. And so we celebrate you, Lord. We say thank you, God, for who you are and what you're doing. Hear us now as we worship you, as we prepare to, to steward this day for your glory and others' good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.